Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Kion Wolf, you were recently recognized by Connecticut Magazine as one of 40 up-and-coming professionals under 40. What's your reaction? I'm the best in the game. Don't you ever talk about me. If you talk about me, I will shut your mouth. Who was talking about you? Crabtree. Who's Crabtree? I don't know. Somebody told me that Crabtree was talking about me. You know, it's entirely possible that I kind of flew off the handle a little bit. Ever since I read Lean In, I've been trying to speak out more. Anything else you'd like to say? Uh, well, it's a team effort, that's for sure. One game at a time, and, uh, you know, nothing happens without Jesus. Is that it? I'd like to wish the entire Crabtree family a prosperous 2014, but he better not talk about me or there'll be a strongly worded letter to the Times, I assure you. Today on The Scramble, a New York Times columnist clashes with a cancer patient, a documentary revisits the Harding-Kerrigan clash, an opposing side clash over the wit and wisdom of Richard Sherman, and tiny figures clash on vibrating metal football fields. And now he was in rehab with Oksana Bayul, and she told him the real story. Colin McEnroe. It's true, but I can't talk about it. All right, deep breath and relax. I'm a little nervous because the executive producer, Katie Tularski, is in the control room there. That usually means something's going wrong or some is there something, anything bad happening? All right, okay, nothing bad is happening. This is The Scramble. Uh, we do it on the first show of the week, which ordinarily is Monday, of course, but yesterday it wasn't, so we're going to do it today. And the whole idea of The Scramble is we kind of invert some of our normal practices here. We uh, book the show as much as possible on deadline, decide what our topics are based on what happened over the weekend. And then one of the things that we typically do, I've, I have taken to calling this the super guest. And the notion of the super guest is that we don't book the guest based on some topic we want to talk about. We book the guest because we want to talk to the guest. And then we ask the guest what topic he or she, what topics he or she wants to talk about. So today we're doing that with Linda Holmes, who writes and edits the NPR's culture blog, Monkey See. I'm sure you've heard her on some of the big, important tentpole national shows. Uh, and we're very excited to have her back with us. She's been with us before. And so we asked her what she wanted to talk about. First of all, Linda Holmes, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. Very excited to have you. And I know that you're down in the D.C. area cowering because of bombogenesis. Because I, of I'm actually about halfway between D.C. and Baltimore, which is part of the reason why I, I stayed home. Oh, okay. So uh, is it snowing there? Oh, it's very much been snowing here. Yeah. Yes. Are you terrified? Oh, well, I used to live in Minnesota, oh, okay, so, so I'm, not. I'm not terribly terrified. Mm -hmm. I just, uh, I do stay off the roads mostly because... Many other people here did not used to live in Minnesota. Exactly. The Beltway area is kind of notorious for not being prepared for snow. Um, mm -hmm. All right. So it's great to talk to you. We're so excited to have you. And one of the things you did blog about this week was um, this this kind of clash that spilled over into all kinds of aspects of the media. It started, uh, well, I mean, it, it could have started weeks and weeks ago with another column, but it started for all intents and purposes about a week ago when Bill Keller of the New York Times wrote a column about Lisa Bonchek Adams. She's a, a cancer patient who uh, has advanced uh, stages of cancer, uh, and uh, he seemed 
not to prefer what she's been doing, which has been tweeting about it, blogging about it, writing about it, sharing her experiences, sharing everything that she's going through with the people who are interested uh, to follow her on Twitter and and elsewhere. Uh, He seemed to prefer a somewhat more stoic and silent approach, uh, similar to the one taken by his father-in-law. I said the, the controversy could have started a few weeks before that because his wife also uh, had written something about this for The Guardian, uh, an article that it's difficult to read now because The Guardian decided that it had some kind of problem with it and it took an uncharacteristic approach of just pulling the column from public consumption. But So where, where do you want to start with this? Uh, where did your uh, ultimately your analysis go? Well, where I wound up talking about this was that, you know, for me, part of what happened here involved uh, you know, Keller is very much a, a very traditional publishing kind of guy, um, has been at the New York Times for a long time, and I think sees uh, a personal story, like a story of an illness, as something that isn't necessarily something that a broad audience needs to, to read. And if you, if you see a, if you think in terms of, if you work at the New York Times, what kind of personal storytelling are you going to go for? You're going to go for personal storytelling that you think is important to a broad audience. And I think one of the things that sometimes isn't as clear as it could be to people who work in traditional publishing is that for a lot of people who write blogs or who are active on Twitter, they're not necessarily believing that their personal story is important to a broad audience. They may know very well that it's important to a few people or a few hundred or a few thousand people who were in a very specific kind of situation. So I think for him to write about your personal story has, you know, what I referred to when I wrote uh, about it as sort of a presumption of importance. And I think he feels like once you take that on, you're advocating for your way of having cancer over everyone else's way of having cancer. And I don't think that's what she's doing. I think she's just, you know, she's writing somewhat therapeutically for herself and for people who are interested, for people for whom this story has meaning, whether it's because they care for her or because they're in a similar situation or just because they're interested in, in how people handle, uh, you know, this kind of very, very difficult circumstance. It seemed he, not only did he sort of fail to understand that decentralized approach to communication that goes on on digital platforms and now, it isn't just sort of one voice of God, the New York Times talking and everybody else listening, but this kind of much more spread out and heterodox kind of conversation. But he Absolutely. also he also didn't seem to understand what was going to happen when he took the position that he did. Uh, I can't believe that Bill Keller wrote a column expecting the kind of backlash that he got uh, on the internet, on Twitter, uh, on on the comment section to his own column. I mean, yeah. people really had a problem with this, right? Yeah, they did. And it, it should be said too that one of the one of the big issues here, I got sort of interested in the publishing aspects and the media aspects. But you no, know, Lisa Adams has said that. These two columns, the one that, uh, that Emma Keller wrote for The Guardian and then the one that Bill Keller wrote in The New York Times, she has said that they also reflect a misunderstanding of what her actual condition is and what her medical situation is. So she has, she has taken the position that not only is this kind of um, off base as a thing to do, but that it did not really reflect how she actually is currently being treated because the indication, I think, in the Bill Keller column is, is kind of that she's in the hospital uh, receiving kind of heroic measures to, to keep her alive every second possible. And whether or not that's her intent, 
Um, she says that's not what's happening right now. She says she's being treated for pain, and it's not, it's not even like that. So there were some issues in that column, both with the way he went about it and then also the, the clarity of the, the information that he had, I think. It sort of parallels to an odd degree. I mean, I hope I'm not forcing the parallel, but I mean, a lot of people are rushing to the movie theaters right now to see Dallas Buyers Club, which is a, a movie about a patient played by Matthew McConaughey, who in a similar way, kind of I mean, to, to the way that you see Lisa Bonchek Adams saying this right now, she, she's sort of saying, don't call me a dying patient. I'll decide when I'm dying. You know, right. I, I, I want to take control of this process and I am in control of this process, just as right. Matthew McConaughey's character, uh, you know, really sort of says, don't tell me I'm dying. Uh, you know, I, I and, and then he vastly outlives the medical establishment's predictions for him. Yeah, and, the, you know, I think the, the thing you want, I think the, one of the lessons of this is if you are going to write about somebody who is sharing something very, very personal, you want to make sure that you've thought it through in terms of what will I appear to be prioritizing. And if I appear to be prioritizing, I don't want you to tell your story in a way that, that I don't like then you have to be prepared for the fact that that there will be some blowback to doing that. That doesn't mean never do it. It just means understand that you really need to spend some time with somebody's personal story um, if you're going to kind of introduce that kind of, especially that kind of, like you said, voice of God, big voice versus small voice. You've got to think about how that's going to come across, when, especially when the the smaller voice, the person who's going to be seen as having a lot less power in the situation is dealing with an illness. It, it seems also uh, for Bill Keller, and I, Bill Keller is, even before this, has become to be mildly symbolic of the old line media guy who kind of doesn't get the digital revolution very well. I mean, this isn't really the first time there have been uh, this kind of clash a, a little bit, although this is the biggest one ever. And, and it does seem the other thing that he didn't understand is if you do make that mistake of not having listened carefully enough, have, not having paid careful enough attention to what you're hearing, and, and maybe written a column that does infuriate people, then you have to sort of deal with the fact that you've infuriated people. You have to deal with a blowback in some other way other than saying, well, this is a bunch of idiots on the internet who, right. who who don't get it. Right. And when the when the public editor at the New York Times asked him some follow-up questions about it, his response, although I think he intended for his response to be respectful to the to the situation, the response really did kind of come off like, well, sort of what do you expect from Twitter? And and it's 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 not I understand. I almost feel like Twitter would have have had a better um, time with people in some corners of traditional publishing if it just had a different name. <laughs> There's something about the name Twitter that makes people feel like it's, it's automatically petty and unimportant. And all it is is a writing platform for really short writing. That's all it is. And it, it's, there's nothing about that that indicates whether it's going to be serious or not, smart or dumb. There's nothing that says what the content's going to be based on the format. And I think his responses came off a little bit like, well, you know, you can tell it's going to be dumb because it's Twitter. 
Yeah, I think the other problem that sort of mainstream publishing people who denigrate Twitter have is, and I think your point about the name is probably pretty true, but I think it's also one of these things where if you didn't get on the train the first three or four times uh, it, it passed your stop, you know, then when you get on it, you're so far behind. You're so, or if you contemplate getting on it, you're so far behind. I mean, the kind of the people who built up big followings and, and, and figured out how to use Twitter early on, they're very hard to catch up to. And so there's a, a kind of throwing up of the hands at that point. Right. Uh, and it, it takes some work to mm. enjoy Twitter, I think. It takes some work to hone your Twitter feed to the point where it's the people you want talking about the things you want. Nobody else's feed looks exactly like your feed. It's an investment of time. It is. Yeah. So, Linda Holmes, um, because we want to divide uh, our time with you in half. Uh, so there's that. And then the other thing that um, uh, you offered to talk about to us, and we, we responded gratefully because we want to anyway, uh, is The Price of Gold, which is a new ESPN, ESPN documentary about the 20-year-old story of Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding uh, for people who uh, need a, a little refresher course in it. Uh, Tanya Harding was uh, accused of somehow or other being responsible for the act- actions of her ex-husband and another man uh, in the injuring of Nancy Kerrigan. There's a lot of things about this story that people remember wrong. They remember right. that it was a baseball bat or a crowbar or something like that. It wasn't. It was a collapsible police baton. They didn't. They, they missed. They didn't hit her in the knee. They hit her. They badly bruised her thigh. She didn't say, why me, why me, why me? She said, why, why, why? Um, people, so uh, it's one of these things where the historical record's gotten a little bit distorted by our memories. But, but once again, what, what was your way in here? What, where, where did you go first with this? The reason I think this is such a good documentary, and it's, it comes from a director named uh, Nanette Burstein, who had previously done this really empathetic and smart documentary about high school students called American Teen. And this one, too, The Price of Gold, is um, very empathetic and interested in Tanya Harding. Now, Nancy Kerrigan did not participate in this documentary, but it's empathetic toward Harding without suggesting that you're supposed to like her, because... My reaction to watching the documentary is when you hear Tanya Harding talking about having had a very, very difficult childhood, um, you know, enduring really kind of um, harsh punishment and harsh criticism from her mother, uh, it's really easy to, to feel some sympathy for her. But it remains really difficult to like her. And I think what makes the documentary so good is that it really complicates the story that people have in their heads, whether, you know, for some people, the story here is that Tanya Harding was a was a, a rotten sort of jerk girl who colluded with other people and injured this other person. For some people, that's what they assume happened. For other people, they think Tanya Harding was kind of salt of the earth. Nancy Kerrigan was some patrician spoiled brat who said, why me, why me, and, and complained and was ungrateful. Uh, and Tanya Harding, you know, was more the the plucky underdog. And whichever way you see the story, I think the documentary makes it seem a lot more complicated than that. Let's just hear a little bit of uh, Tanya Harding in the documentary. This is uh, not uh, f- footage from uh, from 20 years ago. This is the contemporary Tanya. After Sean was arrested, it was like I just couldn't believe what's being said and and stuff. Um, I never met or talked to, didn't even know the other persons that were involved. I mean, everything just, you know, you, you get hit by everything all at once, and you just you just want to, like, crawl in a closet and say, go away, leave me alone, because you just don't know what's going on. 
So that's from The Price of Gold, the ESPN documentary. And so, Linda Holmes, there's so many things going on here. This is sort of an interesting kind of crux uh, in the history of the sport, in, in attitudes towards women. There's so many things going on, including are, yeah. just even the notion that Tanya Harding really was, um, prior to that, somebody who was, and, and Kerrigan also, to a certain degree, were injecting a new note of athleticism in, into women's figure skating. I mean, what, what Tanya, Tanya Harding was able to do was a triple jump that nobody had ever done in competition before. She wasn't uh, cute, and she wasn't um, svelte. She wasn't some of the things that people maybe thought figure skaters should be. Right. Uh, and, and, and on the other hand, she was an athlete who was trying to do something else with the sport. Uh, whether the sport wanted that or not is another question, right? Right. And I, she was not the only skater that ever dealt with that, um, with that uh, sort of divide in skating between the athleticism and the grace. There are other women throughout history. The one that comes to mind for me is Surya Bonnelly. Yes, absolutely, um, absolutely. Who was incredibly athletic, but they always talked about she doesn't look, you know, she doesn't, and of course she was also a black skater, mm-hmm. and so they talked about the fact that that was, you know, some people certainly felt that was an issue for her in terms of acceptance in skating. Um, but, you know, her, her style was more athletic the same way Harding's is. This is this is part of, you know, it's a story about skating. It's a story about, about gender. It's a very, very class-infused story um, because whether it was fair or not, because Nancy Kerrigan's family wasn't rich either, but, right. um, but whether it was fair or not, it kind of became, for a lot of people, a story about kind of a, a woman, uh, you know, Tanya Harding kind of got degraded a lot as sort of trashy and things like that. And it, it, it was a really ugly um, story about the way people envision class as well as, as well as gender. And, you know, and the whole idea of in the documentary, somebody, uh, I believe it's Tony Kornheiser, says in the documentary that uh, figure skaters are the Barbie dolls of sport. It is Tony, yeah. And it's like, well, that's not, I mean, that's not their fault. It's not... It's not Tanya Harding's fault. It's not Nancy Kerrigan's fault. That's a very difficult situation that all of those women, wherever they fit into that, um, have been placed in. Yeah, and I, I think one thing that was that is clear is that figure skating at times had been a, a way of exalting a particular vision of fem, femininity. So you had a, Dor- a, a figure like Dorothy Ham- Hamill who really crossed way over out of figure skating and really became, became kind of iconic in a whole different way. And that Kerrigan was almost poised to do that. Even before all this stuff happened, she was already getting these endorsement contracts from L'Oreal and Campbell's Soup and places yep. like that. She had kind of what they were looking for. She right. was a, a top-flight figure skater and she was that other thing, whatever we're going to call that. Right. And it's, it's, always, it's always tricky, again, because, you know, you, you, when you look at, at a sort of an unfair system that seems to advantage people who have certain qualities that maybe aren't the ones that you think should be the most relevant to skating, it's not the, necessarily the, it's not any of those women who invented that system. And so I think one of the things you get out of the documentary is that both the media that covered that story and the sport that fed a lot of those dynamics um, did not take nearly as much scrutiny as both of these individual women for their individual stories. Who do you like? Whose team are you on? You know, if 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 this were if this had happened in the age of Twitter, you would have had the, the you know the team Tanya and the team Nancy hashtags because that's the way it would have been processed. 
And and it, I think also, and Amanda Hess, uh, who's also been uh, a guest like you on this uh, slot of the program, uh, wrote about this week, the fact that, you know, in some ways it hasn't changed that much. Uh, she talked about the fact that uh, Serena Williams is currently vastly out-earned when you right. start looking at endorsements and things like that by Maria Sharapova, that, you know, pure athleticism isn't rewarded for women the way that it is for men. Peyton Manning doesn't have to look a certain way in order to, uh, and maybe he has to look different from Richard Sherman. That's something we'll be talking in the next segment to Dave Zirin about. Right. But, but um, you know, you don't have to look a certain way to reap those rewards, whereas with women, it seems like you do. I think that's, I think that's still true. And, you know, you, you, when I wrote this piece, I got a comment. It did not take very long to get a comment from a, a reader who said, well, you know, this seems logical to me because women's sports aren't really sports. They're a novelty. And I thought, well, you know, that, that mindset still exists. I don't agree with it, but it still exists, and people still feel like that's an okay thing to say. You know, you can publicly kind of take the position that women's sports aren't sports. And I think as long as that's true, you get a little bit of that, you get a little bit of that quivering where on the one hand it's athletics, but on the other hand it's, it's aesthetic. You know, I wonder also how you react to the the way it tells the sort of subsequent story. This documentary tells the subsequent story uh, of Tanya Harding. You know, it seems as though she's also an example of one of the people who is an example of what happens if you don't make the cut. You know, if, if for whatever reason things don't pan out for you, right. either because of things that you or your Confederates did, or just you just it, it didn't work out, and and right. so you you you're not going to get the endorsement contracts. You didn't win the gold. You're not the kind of mediagenic personality that they're looking for anyway. Um, the the track that she followed, maybe it wasn't the only track, but it's a pretty denigrating one. It is, and she talks a lot about her what she tried to do after that that she. She tried a variety of things. She did celebrity boxing at one point. Um, you know, it, it, it does have the feeling of, uh, as she explains it, really, you know, that she was just trying to figure out how to how to make money and have a life. She points out she wasn't really trained to do anything. She didn't know how to do anything else. Um, and like a lot of sports, you know, skating, you have a very short career, and then you got to figure out, you know, what you're going to do with the rest of your entire life. And that's very challenging for people if, they don't go down that track of um, of endorsements and stuff like that. It was interesting. I don't know if you saw the um, another one of the ESPN documentaries was called Broke, and it was about athletes that lose all their money. Mm. And this kind of made me think a little bit about that, that there are many, many athletes who find their post-professional lives very, very difficult. I think the post-professional life for skaters, too. I mean, just the amount of focus that goes into trying to create one of these careers, and, and there really aren't even the kind of kinds of institutions to nurture them that there are with some other sports, and those, those other sports don't do a very good job of nurturing them anyway. And oddly enough, the person who wound up getting the gold medal, Oksana Bayul, uh, wound up settling here uh, not too far from where I'm sitting right now for a while, and she had all kinds of personal problems, too. Right. I mean, it, it, her, her sort of post-Olympic career and her professional skating career just indicated Boy, they grab these kids when they're really young, get them to think about nothing but skating, probably don't teach them or allow them to develop basic life skills. And, and then, you know, then they watch the whole thing unfold. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have had many experiences watching skating during the Olympics and thinking, especially because of those four-year breaks between Olympics, you can work your entire life and, and work hours and hours and hours a day from when you're four to when you're 20. And the entire point, is to get to this one two-and-a-half-minute routine. Hmm. And it works, and you do great, or it doesn't work, and it's over. And people perceive it as being for nothing. 
And, you know, particularly I think Olympic sports that come down to one or two routines, you know, that's, that is one of the risks. Uh, Linda Holmes, it's been great to talk to you, and thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you so much for mentioning Surya Bonnelly, who I always uh, love. You know, there, there was this yeah, thing I that you, I don't know what they call it, but there's a thing that they do after uh, the program style, uh, routine uh, style of the figure skating. Yeah. The exhibition. And she would come out and do flips and stuff. <laughs> she, she was sure amazing. Did. She, was a, she was a wonderful to watch. Yeah. All right. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you come back sometime. And oh, anytime. All right. We'll take a break. Good luck with the storm down there. It's coming up towards us. We're very afraid of the Bombo Genesis today. We'll be back. Was on Jeff Galuli because Nancy's knee had a quick recovery. He felt like a foolie. She was feeling fine. She was feeling great. She finished second place, and Tanya finished eighth. Nancy, 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 Nancy Kerrigan. Tanya, 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 Tanya Hardman. And you just heard Ray Hardman talking about the Bombo Genesis coming towards us. Let me quickly say, uh, a lot of you know, uh, tomorrow at Watkinson we're scheduled to do a forum about the healing power of music with Kate Callahan and Jim Chapkeling, both survivors of significant uh, medical issues who feel as though music uh, has played an intrinsic role in their ability to survive and prosper afterwards. And we'll also be having a neuroscientist and a music therapist. Uh, we'll be having concert. I say will, but I'm not entirely sure about that because of the storm. Please uh, stay tuned to us or check my Facebook feed or if you're thinking about going, email me or something. We should know sometime tomorrow about whether we can do it tomorrow night there at Watkinson or whether we can reschedule. I haven't figured that out yet. Hoping to do it as scheduled, but uh, we'll find out more. And certainly tomorrow uh, we'll find some way to get word to you about that. So um, with that in mind, we're now going to talk to Dave Zirin, who's also been on our show before. We're excited to have him. He uh, is sports editor for The Nation. His books include most recently Game Over, How Politics Has Turned the Sports World Upside Down. And before Dave gets started, let me just sort of set this up for you. So uh, on Sunday night uh, after the Seahawks-San uh, Francisco game, uh, the Seahawks were victorious. Uh, Richard Sherman, a cornerback for the Seattle Seahawks, um, made the final play. It was a stunner. It was just a brilliant play by a cornerback. Uh, He was approached by uh, sideline reporter Aaron Andrews, and here is how things went. Final play. Take me through it. Well, I'm the best corner in the game. When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. Don't you ever talk about me. Who was talking about you? Crabtree, don't you open your mouth about the best. So I really enjoyed this, <laughs> actually, but then I don't like the 49ers anyway. Um, but this, uh, Dave Zero, and this turned into instantly, I mean, instantly on social media, it turned into one of these kind of odd con- conflagrations being debated by some uh, and, and further anticipation uh, of other kinds of reactions down the road. Was Rush Limbaugh going to be talking about it uh, you know, on his next show? Uh, that kind of thing. What, why was this particular rant by an athlete uh, so important to anybody? Oh, well, first and foremost, it became such a big deal because we are conditioned for post-game interviews to be basically, well, we play one game at a time, good Lord willing, we play one game at a time, two teams played tough out there. So Richard Sherman dispensed with all cliches. The second thing was that it became a kind of a gotcha moment for racists across social media. And let me explain what I mean by a gotcha moment. Because Richard Sherman is somebody who was a straight-A student in Compton, California. He graduated from Stanford in 2010, 
Uh, his intelligence is off the charts. I mean, he writes a column for Sports Illustrated, for goodness sakes, and hasn't missed a deadline in six months. And yet immediately he was being called a thug, inarticulate, which is crazy because whatever you think about what he said, it was certainly articulate. And all of these kinds of racist code words and buzzwords, and then there were also all kinds of people on social media who were dropping N-bombs and racial slurs. And the response by people who either like Richard Sermon, like the Seahawks, or just hate racism was to actually bring up that history and say, okay, so the Stanford graduate is some dumb ape, that's what you're going to say? So it became the kind of thing where a lot of the racism that exists on social media was kind of dragged into the light because he provokes people who, frankly, are racist uh, to actually show their colors and, and jump out into the sun. You know, as we try to unpack this a little bit, though, and you raised some really interesting questions and in you're writing about this, about how it is that we want athletes to act. And, and I think that's a more complicated question than, than maybe we initially think that it is. And one of the parallels that you drew exactly. uh, is uh, you, you drew a parallel to one of the most po- popular athletes of all time and someone who, uh, uh, according to, to you and others, uh, have, has inspired Richard Sherman. And the minute you know that and you go back and listen to the clip, you can see uh, there's a pretty close correspondence to Muhammad Ali who would tend to talk that way and, and maybe created a certain tone, a, a certain trope that that you know a certain kind of effervescent uh, talkative black athlete could follow right exactly and it's worth noting that as long as african americans have played sports uh there has been this kind of pushback against african american athletes who tend to come from poor and working class backgrounds as richard sherman and muhammad ali both did and then all of a sudden are given this outsized cultural platform from which to stand and actually be heard and how many poor and working-class African-Americans are actually given the microphone, let alone uh, today. I'm even like Ali's time and the time of Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight champion. And so then there are a set of expectations placed upon them. It's like, okay, you're getting the microphone because you entertain us, yet you better not use that microphone to say anything worth saying. That's always been kind of a push. Yet at the same time, There are a lot of sports writers out there who, in moments of honesty, say basically, thank God for Richard Sherman, just like there were people in the 60s, younger sports writers, who said thank God for Muhammad Ali because they tend to make your job so much easier because they are so quotable and so brilliant. But if people you mentioned about Muhammad Ali being one of the most beloved athletes on earth, and that's certainly true, but... As I've written, you go back into the archives and look at how people wrote about Muhammad Ali in real time in the 1960s, and it was about as ugly as you can imagine. I mean, people wanted him to shut the you-know-what up. Well, yeah, and he, I think he functioned that way in a whole bunch of different levels. My own personal relationship to this is that my mother, a white uh, Goldwater Republican, was absolutely in love with Cassius Clay. Uh, and, and watching her reaction to Clay and to, to subsequently to Ali, I could see how white men of that era might have been also very threatened by Ali because not only was he incredibly articulate and, and combustible uh, and willing to, to challenge all kinds of authority figures, but he was also very attractive to women in a way that I think a lot of white guys would have a, a hard time handling in that era in particular. And, and, and that's actually also a very important discourse about Ali, which does not necessarily apply in this case, is that Muhammad Ali was never shy about talking about how pretty he was. Mm-hmm. And that was 
threatening on several levels. I mean, first and foremost, of course, the whole concept of black is beautiful was still years away from entering public consciousness. And here's a black man saying, I'm so pretty, I'm so beautiful. And the second thing is that the heavyweight champion is not supposed to say that. And that challenges a lot of the, whether you want to call it repressed homoeroticism in men's sports or provoking homophobia in men's sports. Like once you start having athletes talk about how pretty they are, uh, that, that's something that was certainly like, whoa, you know, how, how do I even understand this as a, as a, male watcher of boxing, which is supposed to be a sport of manliness and violence. You know, if we're going to go through the semiotics of post-game on-the-field interviews, I think we have to go back to one of the first things you said, Dave, was that, uh, which was that athletes are supposed to do things that are spe- uh, essentially reprises of the famous scene in Bull Durham where Kevin Costner is telling Tim yep. Robbins how to talk to sports writers. And all you are supposed to say are platitudes, truisms, the most dry and hackneyed um, things that you can, you can possibly regurgitate. You're never supposed to say anything of any significance, and you're never supposed to say anything that asserts anything in particular about yourself or the opposition. And some of this, of course, is from the old, you know, don't give them anything to put up on the bulletin board uh, to motivate them against you. But there, I'm wondering if you've thought at all about the other reasons for this. Why? What's the purpose? Since it doesn't help sports writers, it doesn't help TV right. networks, it doesn't really help some of the people who typically profit from what athletes do. It doesn't help them to be colorless and boring and neutral in everything that you say. So where does that whole behavior come from? Oh, I think it it comes from the uh, complicity that athletes feel in their own silence because making waves, giving management an excuse to either discipline you or take you off the field. I think the culture of sports, particularly team sports, is often built upon a culture of compliance and of of silence and of conformity. I got to tell you this story. I I don't want to name the school, but I did a talk at a Division I college it was filled with about 200 top Division One athletes. I did a talk about sports and politics for 45 minutes. And when it was the Q&A time, not one athlete raised their hand. It was sponsored by the athletic department, and it was mandatory attendance. So not one athlete raised their hand. It's never happened to me before doing a talk where there's not one question. The athletic director gets up to the microphone and says, if you don't ask a question, we're all going to be running laps tomorrow. And then every single hand goes up. Magically, 200 questions. Uh, were birthed mm-hmm. out of the silence. And I, I, to me, I thought that was just an incredible uh, evocation of why athletes are sometimes very uh, reticent about speaking up. It, it does, you know, and, and it does divide in an odd way. I mean, in a chillingly odd way along racial lines. I mean, on the one hand, you have the kind of exaltation of, of say, Cal Ripken, you know, who really sort of stands for this kind of silent ball player who keeps his head down if he hits a home run and trots around the bases and calls no attention to himself. I mean, that's sort of, you know, that that, that is the white athletic style. And on the other hand, you have uh, somebody like Charles Barkley. You have somebody uh, like Deion Sanders. You have somebody like Richard Sherman. You have Muhammad Ali. Um, and, and, I mean, that seems to be a, a pretty understood and accepted aesthetic, at least among black, black athletes. But it's weird the way it divides down racial lines. I'll tell you another way in which it really exposes itself is that uh, there, there's a discourse that comes from the political right that, oh, we're in this politically correct culture and there's a thought police and uh, you know, everybody now has to watch what they say, and you can't make jokes anymore because you're being policed by left-wing PC thugs. 
And, of course, on the right, there's also this discourse about Horatio Alger, you know, that America's the best country on earth and anyone who works hard enough can make it. If you think about it, Richard Sherman embodies both of those things. He is a Horatio Alger mm-hmm. story going from Compton to Stanford to the NFL, and he's also somebody who uh, does not watch what he says. And yet people on Twitter, the right wing, they lost their minds when he spoke, and it just what it exposes is that these concepts like Horatio Alger, like the American dream, like freedom of speech, is really still, for them, a privileged space. And the, the other thing, just we're going to wrap it up here, but the, my other observation as you're talking is the athletes who get to do this, you know, who, who manage to do this, you have to be superlative of what you do. What, what I'm always uh, thinking right now is that, you know, Barkley and Dennis Rodman and people like that used to drive in seeing the fans of opposing teams. If sure. you could get one of those guys on your team, you'd do it in a second. And there isn't an NFL fan in the country right now that doesn't want Richard Sherman as a cornerback on, on their team instead of on the Seattle Seahawks. Because you've got to be that you've got to be that good to be able to to say what these guys say. Yeah, or or you end up Freddie Mitchell. Right. And if people don't know who that is, they can Google him. Philadelphia Eagles wide receiver who uh, had a terrific mouth and was very quotable, uh, but didn't really have the game to back it up. And that does, and that's why a lot of players want to be quiet because maybe you get an extra year or two in the league if you're a marginal player if you keep your head down. Dave Zierin, great to talk to you again. Thanks so much for honoring us uh, by joining us today. Oh, my privilege. Thank All right, you. Uh, we'll be back. We'll be back to talk to you about another kind of football, not the kind that's played on a field. It's played on a vibrating metal platform with miniature football figures. It's still being played. You might have played it as a kid. I'm auditioning for the role of Nancy Kerrigan in a new play, but the soliloquy is kind of monotonous. Why? Why? Why is it so monotonous? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Skylar Magnoli and Jackie Lauper. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jeff Galuli. For pictures, links, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff talking trash about Crabtree and Evelyn, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, if you missed our conversation about asteroid strikes, fortunately, so did the asteroids. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, we should have uh, on tomorrow our, um, it was really a great conversation with a a novelist who does detective fiction about uh, the end of the world uh, as an asteroid is about to approach. But also, we'll update you on the science, uh, the latest science on detection and deflection of potentially dangerous asteroids. So won't that cheer you up while you're cowering in your house hiding from the bombogenesis of the storm. Uh, very quickly here, I also want to thank uh, Greg Hill, who tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and our executive producer, uh, Katie Tolarski. And as I say, tomorrow we will try to get word to you one way or another about whether the uh, 7 p.m. forum over at Watkinson School uh, on the healing power of music uh, will be taking place. Uh, we're hoping that the storm will not be that bad and we can still do that. Uh, all right, uh, we're going to move on here. Uh, if you were a boy uh, in, say, 1970, 
2024 instead of 2014, uh, and it were January, there's a pretty good chance uh, that somebody might have given you for Christmas uh, these, this great uh, electronic football set. It was a, a metal sheet kind of that uh, vibrated. Actually, our guest is going to be able to describe this so much better than I'm doing right now, but it was a metal sheet that vibrated. There were miniature uh, football figures on it. The vibrations of the sheet caused the football figures to move, uh, and uh, this made for hours and hours of youthful fun. Uh, and I would have guessed that maybe uh, in this stage of digital platforms and, and gamers and stuff like that, that it was all gone. Uh, I was delighted to find out that it wasn't. Joining us right now is Vance Warren. He's one of the board of directors for the Miniature Football Coaches Association. He's been playing the game for 35 years. There's a very big tournament coming up right now. So, Vance Warren, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And, and so tell us about the state of the game these days. Um, first of all, is that particular game manufactured anymore, or do you guys have to play on, on vintage sets? Um, no. We, we are playing on um, more innovative, more uh, modern equipment. Um, we, have, we have boards now the size of twin-size beds that we play on. Mm. Uh, we have a tournament coming up in Florida uh, the weekend of uh, President's Day weekend. Uh, the 14th through the 16th of February in Lakeland, Florida, where all the boards that we're playing on are the size of twin beds. The figures have gotten bigger, much more control, and uh, it's, it's uh, as they say, it's not your, your dad or your granddad's electric football. Okay. And so um, explain, I, I, did, I did a poor and fumbling job of explaining this game. I, explain exactly how this works. Well, basically you have a metal or plastic, but mostly metal, uh, surface that uh, is bound by uh, wood or plywood around it and you plug it in and the vibration makes the plastic bases uh, the platform for the figures um, makes them vibrate and makes them go most of the time in the direction that you want to go um, we have a, a, I guess a negative uh, um, remembrance by a lot of people as the men just spun around in circles and, and, and didn't go where you want them to go. But nowadays, we have guys, we have, we have uh, plays that uh, mimic the real thing. I mean, you can run a 3-4 defense. You can run the read option. Uh, the league that we have here in D.C., just this past Saturday, we, had our fin- we finalized our, our regular season getting ready for our playoffs. And some of the plays that some of the coaches were running looked as if RG3 was in the game running the read option with Alfred Morris. Now, in, in order to do that, have you guys essentially had to sort of – because, okay, as a kid, I used to go over to Bruce Moeller's house and play this game, uh, and it did exactly as you were saying. I mean, sometimes there might be some kind of exciting things that would happen uh, in a kind of random way, but it was pretty chaotic for the most part, and the, it was hard to get the pieces to do what you wanted them to do, and, and the version of passing involved this kind of flicking of, uh, of something that, that, that wasn't really all that satisfying either. It sounds as though maybe you guys have sort of managed to, quote-unquote, hack the pieces so they do a little bit more and they're a little bit more controllable yes um the new the new uh manufacturer which is tutor games well it's sort of a, a retread it was the original company then it was bought by miggle toys and now tutor games is back and as a matter of fact this weekend up in philadelphia we're having the tutor con we call it con short for convention tutor con 14 up at the uh up in philadelphia from friday to sunday and the new games that that uh, Doug Strom, he's the president of Miggle, I mean of uh, Tudor Games. He has uh, <clears throat> now the new sets that are coming out, the the bases or the platforms that the men, the the figures will be on top of, are now pre-programmed. They're they're either for speed or for strength. You can still do as we call it a little tweaking 
where you could take some pliers and different things. But now, pretty much out of the box, from what I'm being told, the bases are coming with speed and with strength. So basically, a newbie, uh, 10, 11, 12 year old child, can take the game and start mimicking what they see on the the uh, on the big screen. Are there things that there must be things that you're not allowed to do? There must be things that are the the uh, miniature football equivalent of performance enhancing drugs, right? What <laughs> what can't you do to your pieces? Well, you're not supposed to you're not supposed to boil them. We we have to, I'm going to tell you something right. <laughs> boil now. them. We have some mad scientists. We I mean when I say mad scientists, these guys get into their labs. They boil bases. They use mineral water. They use mineral oil. They they uh, uh, use these flames. They do all types of things. But the thing that really is prohibited is what is known as Frankenstein, where you can put a base inside of a base and make it super strong or make it uh, uh, unstoppable by rounding the edges. Certain certain little things that 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 guys that are even you know, I've been at this 35 years and I still don't understand how some of these guys do some of the things that they do. But those things are prohibited. But um, Pretty much we, we, we let guys uh, uh, use their imagination. Our association has uh, five tournaments that we put on every year. Um, the first one was in Dallas. The next one is in Florida. Um, we have one here in D.C. called the Capital City Clash. I started that way back in 1998. Um, that's in uh, Beltsville, Maryland. We have one in, in Birmingham, Alabama, well, Oxford, Alabama, about an hour outside of Birmingham. And that's the oldest tournament. That's been going. We just celebrated our 20th year last year. And we have a national convention in Cleveland uh, the first weekend in August. So we have a circuit where similar to the NASCAR where you play, um, you play in a tournament, and we have the five winners automatically qualify for the chase. We call it the chase for the ring. We're trying to come up with a better name. But <laughs> where the best, the top eight play for the national championship ring, which is really nice. And for those that want to see about the association or see what we're up to, you can go to mfca.org. You know, I, I first of all, I can tell you the name for for your Super Bowl. It should be called Good Vibrations. Okay. But, um, but, you know, beyond that, uh, Vance Warren, uh, you've used the word guys a, a bunch of times. Uh, my assumption is that in 35 years, no woman has ever played this game. A- am I wrong? No, you're, you're, you're totally wrong. We have uh, <laughs> one of our, um, our best uh, women coaches. Uh, Joy, she's since long retired. She's you know getting up there in age, but she played. We have, we have other women. We have. Wait a minute, women you can be getting, you can be too women. old to play oh. miniature football. Say what? <laughs> you can be too old to play miniature football. Well, you know it's a lot of standing involved. You know standing up and setting your players up and and all of that because we are timed. We just don't play untimed. We, you know we simulate the game. We do you know fifteen minute quarters or thirty minute halves and those type of things to simulate the uh, the actual game itself. But no, you can. You know, people can get up in age, and, and, and you know they don't—they're not as flexible. We'll say that mm-hmm. as they used to be. Tell me about it. I'm that yeah, that can happen. So, um, since we just finished a segment uh, on Richard Sherman, um, is there trash talking in this game? Oh yeah, you have some. You you have some guys that have come in. Uh, one of one of the guys that I helped mentor when we first came in this game, uh, Big Keith Chalmers, is, is we call him Big Salty because he's always throwing salt in the game and and, and getting guys riled up. But he's an excellent coach. It's all in fun. I mean, the fellowship that's involved on and off the, the board, as we say, is amazing. I mean, you have guys that are just sit around. It's like a big family reunion when we get to these these places. We, we played in Alabama last year, finished up a tournament with 30 coaches, done by 10 o'clock, 
and we sat outside and just talked life, talked fun, talked football for four hours. We literally had to push ourselves to go upstairs to go to bed for the next event the next day. The, uh, well, it's important to get rest. I mean, you don't want to come in tired. Uh, and, and so I'm also assuming another thing that a lot of you have in common is very understand, understanding spouses. I mean, does this, this feels like a hobby or a game that would require you not only to go to all these tournaments and stuff like that, which are spread around the country, but, you know, you're going to have to, like, be downstairs in the rec room or wherever it is that you, you do this on, on a pretty regular basis, right? Working on strategy, working on plays, maybe, you know, switching from the 3-4 to a different kind of flex or figuring out your nickel package is that the way it is i mean is it time consuming oh it's very it's very time consuming but with, with any hobby with any hobby you'll have uh, uh um you have to put in your best you have to you, you know to become an expert or something and say you need to do ten thousand hours or something something like that mm-hmm. but um the biggest thing is that um it is important to have an understanding spouse and i have the greatest spouse in the world i love you michelle i want to give you a shout out <laughs> all right that's listening right now but um you definitely have to have an understanding spouse. And a lot of the guys, I encourage them to come to the tournaments and bring their families. We're starting, we're getting ready to start, or we're trying to start a women's association or wives and spouse association, however you want to look at it, <laughs> and get them involved where they can meet. And just basically, like the, the Tudor convention next weekend, my wife and daughter are going to drop me off. And go shopping. And, and Right. And I told her, she said, go play with your friends, and then I'll come back and get you in a few hours. So, so- so uh, it's clean fun. It, it it doesn't involve anything negative, anything sinister. It's 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 good for you know for us male bonding and family bonding, and a lot of a lot of dads are bringing sons, and that's the next generation we got to concentrate on. You know, Vince Warren. Uh, last question because we're running out of time here. But uh, I, I, uh, the TudorCon 14 uh, Electric Football World Championship and Convention is coming up next weekend. I'm not saying I know people in Vegas. I'm not saying I don't know people in Vegas. But let's just say that I wanted to put a bet down. Who, who looks good to you? Who do you think? Uh, you know, where do you think the action should go? Well, you, you have again Big Keith. You have Adrian Baxter, who they just did a feature on, who's a good friend and a great coach. You have yeah. Jim Davis. You have Norbert Rebels. You have a bunch of coaches that are uh, that are world champions. Uh, uh, take this thing serious, but I know it's, it's it's all in fun, and we shake hands afterwards. So, so a hundred hundred dollars on big, big hundred dollars on Big Keith. I wouldn't be crazy anyway, right? No, you wouldn't be crazy at all. All right, Vance Warren. Thank you so much for talking to us, man. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and God bless everyone. All right, take care. Uh, thanks to everybody who helped out today, especially Betsy Kaplan, who has put together this show together. Thanks to Wolfie for her great work on the intro. We'll be back uh, tomorrow with Asteroids. Wolf. Come on, Tanya. This is your chance to redeem yourself. You can clear your name. Why? Again? And this time you did it yourself. God, what is wrong with you?